Warning, this podcast contains heavy spoilers for not just one movie, but entire franchises. We highly recommend going and watching these movies before listening to us as a companion piece that stitches all the timelines into one creepy, crime-ridden story. There will be no more spoiler warnings. We do not break character. After this, there is no turning back. You've been warned. Hit the music. You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Welcome to It's Alive Alive Podcast. This is a true crime paranormal interstellar podcast covering unbelievable stories that sound like they were ripped straight from the pages of a Hollywood script. I'm your host, the man of many names, the outlaw Harley Ray, the bruiser Bronson, Dr. H.R. Smokenstein, THC, or you can just call me Josh for short. And with me, as always, is my very own Scream Queen, the perfect combination of beauty and brains, the bride, the, sp- the smoke of the India, the expert, the guts and gore, the gorgeous, the sexy Amy Rose. Hi. Hey. Hey. Fucking late. I know. <laughs> Better late than never. Yeah. Do you know what? We put up technical difficulty, right? And I want. I think if we're going to do this, we might as well be honest when we're doing this and kind of, you know, talk about what's really going on. Uh. And I think, well, I just, yeah, it'll wrap into what we're going to talk about. I mean, we're talking about mental health today, especially with Michael Myers. Do you know yeah, how the yeah. mental health system failed? Laurie, how it failed Michael, how it failed Dr. Loomis himself. Yeah. But I think we could talk as well a little bit about why we were actually late. Okay. And I think I'm going to take a bit of the blame, but I think I saw a bit of it in you as well this week. Really? I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, no, you did. You did. I can get anxiety from time to time. And I can't really explain it, and I don't know where it comes from. Well, I do. I suppose sometimes it's probably like a lot of people money-related and stress. And I know a lot of people, you know, get fucking anxiety these days. And I think it sounds like a lot more people get it these days. It's just that we can talk about it better. Yeah, yeah. Because I know my mom has told me, like, that, you know, like, I think my granddad had a little bit of anxiety at times. And she said, like, you know, there's other members of my family that I know who have yeah. anxiety. So, I mean, I know it's there and it just couldn't be spoken about for the longest time. But, like, when I said technical difficulties, I wasn't talking about a computer. I wasn't talking about the internet. I was talking about a connection in my head. Yeah. That just yeah. wasn't allowing me to focus on more. Even last week's episode, I wanted to be more serious about Michael Myers. But last week's episode, I needed to do a funny episode mm. where we talked about the lighter side of that subject with Urban legends and, yeah, and stuff like that yeah to just decompress because the social media thing is is coming at us hard and fast yeah a lot mm-hmm. and, and that that's a lot to deal with and a lot to, to face into every day and then on top of it you got regular life which mm-hmm. is tough enough and work and all this kind of crap yeah so you're trying to fit everything in and then there's the guilt as well of we have the two kids who we need to try and spend time with yeah. which is why we kind of used the excuse to watch as many movies with Riley this week as we could yeah. to not do what we were supposed to be doing over here. Yeah. But at the same time, we really want this to be a success. 
and we really work really hard and that's another reason why this is late is because i didn't want to rush the script when i wasn't feeling right and i wasn't feeling good we wanted it to be okay like, and i knew my brain wasn't going to let me do the best work i wanted to do i knew i needed to step back so i promised two episodes this week and yeah. that's not going to happen no i know that and i know it's right for it not to happen because it wouldn't be a good episode mm-hmm. the stuff i've written for today you're happy with I'm fucking happy yeah. I can't wait to fucking I'm excited I'm as excited as I was when I was doing the Sawyers I, I really am I feel like I had the extra time has given me a chance just a chance to relax as well and get that anxious feeling away because when it comes to anxiety I can't like I said I can't explain it it's the weirdest feeling you it's almost like being like you're ready to explode like yeah so much energy in you that you could explode but no motivation to use it so I'd, I'd curl up in a ball and close my eyes just as quick as I'd go and run a marathon for you. Yeah. And you know me, a lot of the time in the past, my way of dealing with that has been going for really, really long walks. Yeah, oh, it has. Missing, and that's it. It's just to try and get that out of me and give me that time, the, the, the quietness mm-hmm. to try and get my head straight. Yeah. And that's what happened this week. was just every time I was getting close to doing a bit of work, I, I, I'd start to fucking feel that anxious feeling, yeah. that restlessness mm-hmm. and... Then, like, Riley come to me and he'd be like, can we watch a movie tonight? And I'd be like, you know what? Yeah, let's go do that. I'd take any excuse to walk away yeah, from yeah. what I was doing. Yeah. Not that that was an excuse. I enjoyed watching Oh, yeah, oh, yeah no, we enjoyed it. We watched that. the thing. We watched uh, What else did we watch? I can't remember. But uh, he, he, he enjoyed them. We had he did. Fun. Well, you had fun, yeah, when we did. But we were kind of using it as an excuse to kind of try and give ourselves a couple of seconds to get our brains back functioning mm. and do you think as well that it might have had something to do we really enjoyed this experience but with the interview i felt yeah. that important same imposter feeling that i felt at the start of doing the podcast not as bad but it was still there i, I felt like after oh no was i did it i enjoyed every yeah. second of that. yeah we did an interview for the horror realm with travis bruce on youtube it was a lot of fun and we talked a lot of shit about a lot of movie mm-hmm. and true crime mm-hmm. and it was it was a good it was day. i enjoyed it it was a it was nice, nice easy going conversation yeah. but once it came out it was like something in my head was kind of saying like that, that, that's weird that maybe i shouldn't be in that position you know? mm-hmm. and, and you have to convince yourself again to start going and start moving yeah and as i start to sit down right again then i start to get back into that mode again and yeah able to do it again and everything's okay again but Shit, when I hit it, kind of debilitating. It, yeah, and I don't want. It's not like I'm a fucking weeping mess in the corner. No, you're not. Like you're not. But it is. It's 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 I not. I just get quiet. Not normal anxiety. It's it's yeah. yeah. You know? no, yeah. I would agree. I'll do stuff, but not necessarily what I should be doing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Someday like you I've will seen you the entire day just watching movies. Yeah. Curled up on the couch together, watching movies, not moving. But at the, on the other side of it, I've seen you when your anxiety no, hits we and the house is shining afterwards. Do you know? Huh? I've seen you on the other hand then when you're when 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 your anxiety hits and the house is shining afterwards. So it's not really. Well, that's when you have that yeah. excess energy. Yeah. You don't want to do with it. Yeah. So you start just moving, and like you said, I just clean the entire house. Like. Mm, yeah. <laughs> okay. Look. It could be using it a lot worse. I mean, uh, Michael Myers went away and murdered countless amount of people <laughs> from his mental illness. Did he that have is... anxiety, though? Extreme he probably anxiety. Didn't. That's probably the one thing <laughs> he didn't have. That guy didn't seem anxious at all about anything. Well, if he had no emotions, oh, he probably wasn't able to feel anxiety. Yeah. Well, um, 
Yeah. Again, that's quite a while with it. And I don't plan for this to happen again. I want to be on time, like Joe. Mm-hmm. So even though you're not going to get pack three and four within a day of each other, you are going to get them pretty close. Yeah. This is going to come out on Friday and all, and the next episode will be back out on Wednesday. Yeah. Because we were getting back. Exactly. Back to our proper mind frame. Yeah. I think we just got to get used to that as well. Because, mm-hmm. again, like I said, social media is coming hard and fast. There's a lot of work there. There is. You're talking to a lot of new people. And that's another thing, whereas I have the anxiety that likes to just hit me randomly and knock me on my ass, you have that kind of more social anxiety of meeting people for the first time. For the first time. I don't consider myself a quiet person. When you, uh, would no, you no, consider no. me a quiet person? No. But when I'm around some, when I'm around new people, I, I, I completely Once like, go into a shell. Once you common like. ground, you are off and running. Mm-hmm. But when like uh, like that was the one. I thing. get over if there's more than like <coughs> a, I, I, if there, if the, if this kitchen was packed the day of Riley's communion I know I knew everybody here and I I said it to Nikki and I said it to Mom I had to go upstairs and I had to sit down in the bed not because I didn't want to be around people I had to sit down in that bed for ten minutes and I just needed to and then I was fine again like so sometimes situations like that I find a tiny bit overwhelming yeah. yeah. But like we had to say because I was saying to you that I was more I gonna get I was starting to get a little worried. That people listening to our podcast or listening to our interview or listening to the interview we did with Travis, yeah, might start to think that in our relationship that I speak for you or I speak <laughs> over you or I speak. It was and my don't first time meeting Travis, and that's what the problem is. <laughs> not that I don't give you a chance to talk sometimes, Ed, because yeah. it's while well, you're getting used to, to to doing this and getting yourself out of your comfort yeah. zone. Yeah. And you have been. I am. I'm massively out of my comfort zone. Every episode, I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it though. Yeah, yeah, and every episode, there's more and more of you creeping in, mm-hmm. and it, it's taking time. And it took me a couple of episodes mm. to get myself kind of comfortable enough to be. Oh yeah, yeah. And it was the same. And then we were doing the interview with Travis, mm-hmm. and I was eating up the room. <laughs> I was doing all the talking. <laughs> I mean, I barely gave him a chance to talk, let mm-hmm. alone giving you a chance mm-hmm. to talk. But you were kind of sitting there happy. Uh, I you, was happy, yeah, exactly. Well, you, it at wasn't... that point, you had been up about 22 hours or so, and you were just dying to go to bed. I could see it in my eyes hours. on the interview. I was hanging, <laughs> hanging. And then he hits you with a question, and I swear <laughs> to God, the only thing I could compare it to was a kid who studied the wrong thing for home. Or for the, 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 the but that's what happened. And he just, Travis turns around to you, and he's like, what? Who is your favorite final guy? And you're like, what the fuck is a final guy? I, I've been stu- studying slashers all week for behind the mask. <laughs> my mind just went <laughs> blank. I know what a final girl is. And you were looking at me and hitting me. But the problem was, I knew he had directed the question. I knew he had directed because it towards me as well. Because, because I hadn't, I hadden't yeah. spoken and it was going to give you a chance. I had spoken, but just not oh, much. No, no, like, yeah. yeah. And in your and I knew that, I and I like, knew that if I spoke no yeah. for you, that uh, it was going to be I knew the same. terrible. Yeah. So you were hitting me in the leg under the camera, saying, "Give me something," <laughs> and I'm sitting there going, "Fuck, I can't, I can't, I can't." And eventually, I just tried to whisper you. I was like, "And be back." Andy back. Except the whole world heard <laughs> Like, maybe Andy. <laughs> oh, God. I was like, there's a, I'm going to be fucking cancelled before I even get started. I'll be honest. Think that I'm like. <laughs> Once that question was put to us, I was absolutely fucking dreading the next two. I was like, what's coming after this? But they were okay. They were okay questions. But again, you set off like your answer to the next question set me off talking again for about 10 minutes. Well, because it was about the Sawyers. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was, that was... 
It was about our favourite yeah. two prime subjects yeah. that we, we covered and the shitty urban legend that went with it. <laughs> which was the 2022 thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we were talking about how we enjoyed that uh, that um, viral video that went around back and all those influencers cancelled. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thing, yeah. yeah. That we spoke about at the end of the Sawyer's Part 2, I think it was. Yep. Yes. I fucking love that story. I'd go back, I'd do the Sawyer's all over again. For you. Absolutely. We had fun <laughs> that week. What did we watch last night? It was very like, um, very like, you were like, oh, this is very like the dinner scene from the Sawyers. Oh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. The Rocky Horror Picture Show. I said, that's why when I, when I think about how the Sawyers must have been, the, the Rocky Horror Picture Show with a lot of dust and bones is how I pictured it. Cool movie. But you know, it's based on a true story, an uh, alien true story. Mm-hmm. About when did these three people, you know, this, this doctor and these, this couple. Oh, yeah. Up, apparently. Yeah. Well, we could cover that someday. Definitely. Could, definitely. I mean, it's basically the movie, the story of the movie. It is. With, uh, well, we, we could definitely get yeah. into it for people who haven't heard of it. Have a look at it. It'll be a cool sci-fi one for us to look into. Because we're not just about serial killers here. We are going to look at some ghosts. We are going to look we at are. the skies and see the aliens. Mm-hmm. We are going to look at... Uh, oh, I can't wait to do mobsters as well at some stage. Did you ever definitely. hear of uh, Tony Soprano? No. Well, he's a guy we got to cover fill me in later. Or Walter White. That guy was a gang lord. Heard of Walter White. Everyone's heard of Walter mm-hmm. fucking White. But we definitely got to cover those guys as well at some stage. But for today, we will stick with the scary serial killer guy. We will. We'll talk a bit about them. When we last left Haddonfield two weeks ago, Michael Myers had just been apprehended. Ten bodies left in his wake, eight of which had been the product of the previous few hours of work Michael had undertaken since his escape. The other two being his sister Judith and his father Peter, both of which he murdered in the 60s before even hitting puberty. Last week we told you all about the urban legends. Cults and copycats of the shape Michael Myers. And to be fair, we had a lot of fun with it. Even if by the end of the story us Irish weren't looking so hot. But that was all make-believe. Silly stories and campfire tales used to scare children at bedtime. Well, the Irish stuff was anyway. The cult and the copycat killers, they were real and caused a fair bit of pain and suffering to a good number of people. But we don't care about that anymore. That's not what you came here to hear last week, and it's certainly not what you're here to hear this week. I think we've kept you hanging long enough, and it's time to look at what Michael Myers was doing with all his free time in Smith's Grove Sanitarium from 1978 to 2018. 1978 was a launching pad of a media storm. Myers was unlike anything that had come before him. We're talking about the golden age of the serial killer. The babysitter massacre of 78 was already in the wake of the Zodiac Killer, the son of Sam, Henry Lee Lucas, Otis Toole, and during the reigns of Bundy Gacy, the Golden State Killer, BTK, and Jeffrey Dahmer. Yet all eyes were on the freak, the shape, the boogeyman, Michael Audrey Myers. Loomis had given up hope on rehabilitation, and as you said, this was the golden age of the serial killer in American media. People were and still are obsessed with psychopaths. Lucky for us. But that's not what Loomis wanted. Loomis had learned from years of mistakes and study. He knew Michael's ability to corrupt and manipulate without uttering so much as a word. His original recommendation to the courts was that Michael be destroyed. Put to death, his evil spirit banished from this world, never to harm an innocent soul again. 
But Michael had long been deemed insane by the courts, so he couldn't be held accountable for his actions. It was the incompetence of the sanitarium, prison guards and staff that led to Michael's escape. The courts argued that blaming Michael for his killing spree would be like holding an escaped line from the zoo accountable for what it naturally does in the wild. And so it was decided. Michael would again be put back into maximum security sanitarium for the criminally insane. But this time he would be taken away to an undisclosed location so as to minimize his impact on pop pop culture and the serial killer fanboys. America had enough problems when it came to serial and mass murder. Having an animal like the shape on the field would be a game changer. The less people who knew about the pure evil that resided within Michael, the better. So although the recommendation of death from Loomis was rejected by the courts, they did agree he would be the best man to watch over and study him. They also agreed he needed to be stashed far away from Haddonfield and Laurie Strode, who was, to say the least, dealing with enough shit. Yeah, needless to say, Laurie did not come out of the 1978 event unscathed. All her friends were dead and an encounter with the living embodiment that a boogeyman had left her suffering from pretty intense PTSD. Every time I read a line where all her all her friends are dead, I just go straight into it. Is it Turbo Negro that do that song? All my friends are dead. (laughs) PTSD that was not fully understood at that point in time, leading to Laurie slipping through the cracks in the system, turning to alcohol and prescription drug use to deal with her feelings of utter fear and despair. I wish I hadn't put a joke in the middle of that. That, that, that. (laughs) Pretty serious. It must have been tough on her. I mean, like you just said, she saw this man as the living, breeding boogeyman. Or I just said that, didn't I? Yeah. Knowing that he was still out there, not knowing where he was. How would you ever relax again? You wouldn't, basically. So (laughs) this year, Laurie released her memoirs, Stalkers, Saviors and Samhain. And that's our main source for the next two episodes. In it, she tells the story of how her parents, Morgan and Pamela, were left with a traumatized daughter and no idea how to help. They watched her as their previously straight-laced daughter became a heavy drinking party girl. Party girl makes it sound light and like a phase you go through in your 20s, but this was over the top. Laurie was the girl at the party you spent the night trying to avoid because she was clearly dealing with something. Laurie was dealing with something, something big. And before she could process these feelings and work through her trauma, tragedy would enter her life again. When in 1979, Laurie's father, Morgan, passed away from a heart attack. Laurie blamed herself for her father's death, feeling the stress and worry brought on by her current lifestyle was the catalyst for her father's death. And unfortunately, her mother, Pamela, agreed. Laurie tried to get her life together and started therapy. But again, we're now heading into the 1980s. So Laurie was handed a prescription and told to get on with it. I imagine back in those days, it was when a woman came in with any problem. It was, here's a bottle of Valium, go fuck off. Oh, yeah. About 50 years beforehand, it would be, here's a vibrator. (laughs) So while she was no longer out drinking and taking (laughs) drugs recreationally, she was drinking and taking prescribed drugs at home, self-medicating her mental illness, but really just feeding her depression and paranoia. In this time, Laurie had a few relationships. She doesn't delve too deeply into them in her book. She wanted the book to focus on the fight and survival against evil, So her two marriages and the one night stand that led to the birth of her daughter, Karen, are really only in there as footnotes to her story. What we do know is that Karen was born in 1981, two years after the death of her father and a year since her mother had kicked her out of home. 
when Laurie fell pregnant with no clue as to who the father was, her mother had had enough. Between the constant paranoia, fits of rage, depression, drinking and over-medicating, Pamela had had all she could take. She kicked Laurie out and told her to stay away until she could get her life straightened out. I think Pamela had some shit to work through here too. She clearly blamed Laurie, Laurie from Morgan's heart attack and death. I think she was projecting that grief and anger onto Laurie, who was herself dealing with the trauma from 1978, the survivor's guilt and the guilt and belief that she was the cause of her father's stress-related death. Two of them needed therapy. Huh? They needed therapy. Well, yeah, like grief therapy yeah. or something like that. But yeah. I mean, like, it must suck because it, she kind of was a little bit to do with the extra stress oh, well, that the man yeah. was under, you know. But again, it's not her fault. I mean, it's victim blaming, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Again, I think if someone's having like constant fits of depression and rage, that's not really their fault either, unless it's like drug induced or whatever. But for her, that is trauma. Just like, you showing know. the lack of understanding for mm, mental health at the time. Exactly. Laurie's idea of getting her life straight was prepping. It was at this point she became a recluse and the whole cult of Thorn Jamie Lloyd myths and rumours started around Haddonfield. But really, Laurie was still in Haddonfield, convinced her boogeyman would again return and determined to be prepared to take it down when it did. She sold her story once to a cheap rag of a paper and used the money to fund her high-security compound home and after that refused all interviews going forward. When you say high-security, you mean it too. Laurie Strode's compound would put H.H. Holmes Hotel to shame. The modest-sized home was decked out with the top-of-the-range security, floodlights, booby traps, a gun range, and a well-stocked state-of-the-art panic room, which was fitted in the basement and, and accessed through a hidden passage under a floating island in the centre of the kitchen. The house was also fitted with a kill switch, but we'll have more on that a little later. This all sounds like worrying behaviour, but not harmful behaviour. I mean, I could see myself doing the same thing if I survived the Michael Myers attack, or any serial attack for that matter. The problem was though, Laurie wasn't alone and had a child to raise and to take care of. Karen was homeschooled with most of her curriculum skewed towards survivalist techniques, trap making, gun assembly, target practice, hunting and drill running. Sounds like a pretty good school. Okay. Fun school, anyway. <laughs> By the time she was eight, Karen knew how to fire a gun, how to build traps, and was able to fight. She could be the modern-day Bear Grylls. Yeah. She had nightmares for years about the house's basement, which was filled with an arsenal of weapons. When Karen was 12, social services deemed Laurie an unfit mother and took Karen into foster care, and Laurie was never able to regain custody of her daughter after that. Eventually, Karen met and married a man named Ray Nelson, and together they had a daughter named Allison. Karen remained estranged from her mother for many years and became resentful of the fear and paranoia Laurie had instilled within her from a young age. You'd feel awful for her. Like, everything she's went through, she thinks she's doing the right thing in preparing her daughter for the terrifying world around her, but really she's just making her an anxious, paranoid loner, just like her mother. She had to be taken out of that environment for her own good. And I think Laurie would agree later when you see how she bounces back from the events that we're about to discuss. This was an eye-opener for Laurie at the time. This is like 1993 at this point. She was forced to start following the rules and guidelines laid out by child services if she was to have any hope of getting Karen back. And she was making good headway. It took three years, but she got to the point of unsupervised visits with Karen with the view of a sleepover visit in the very near future. That's when Dr. Loomis died. Over the three-year period of trying to get Karen back, Laurie had reconnected with Dr. Loomis and regularly spoke to him by telephone, using this as a form of therapy. 
Loomis was the only person she knew who could understand her feelings when it came to Michael. He shared her fears but was able to reassure her as he had Michael tightly locked away and under constant sedation and supervision. That's why when Dr. Loomis passed in 1996 and news that Michael would be returning to Smith's Grove in Haddonfield, Laurie had a relapse and fell back into old habits and once Michael was transferred, spent most nights parked outside the sanitarium, standing guard, heavily armed and with a bottle of Jack Daniels to keep her company. Essentially killing any chance she had of regaining custody of Karen and putting their relationship as a whole on pause because of Laurie's obsession. Okay, it's honesty time. We have a confession to make. We suck at socials. No good at Insta. Can't send a tweet or an X or whatever that supervillain looking motherfucker is calling it now. Stick to your space cars, Elon. But we know you want to chat. You want to be kept updated. You want to be alive alive all the goddamn time. So we're getting down from the anti-social soapbox and giving this a try. So come chat to us on Insta and Twitter at Alive Alive Pod or hit us up by email at itsalivealivepod at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. This is a project. It's still a work in progress and we just want to give you more of what you like and less of what you can't stand. So give us a like, give us a follow. We'll always hit you back and we'll all always try to reply to everyone so come say hi we don't bite well at least amy doesn't and she keeps me well fed so you got nothing to worry about now back to the show (laughs) so whose bright idea you might ask was it to return michael myers to haddonfield illinois given all the history and survivors left in the community well that's where dr ranbeer sartain comes in dr sartain was a student of dr loomis and had become fascinated with michael's case he studied the case files and eventually took over Michael's treatment after Loomis passed away. He would continue to try and reach Michael to understand his motives, but all his attempts were fruitless. It was for this reason he requested to have Michael transferred, returning him to a familiar surrounding, hoping to jog a little memory, a little nostalgia to get the monster's brain going. To be fair, over the 18 years since Michael's last stint in Smith's Grove, the sanitarium had undergone major renovations and had been upgraded to a state-of-the-art maximum security hospital, so it was probably the best place for Michael medically, in theory. In theory, yes, but in practice, not so much. Michael showed no improvement upon his return to Illinois, and the clock was ticking for Sartain to get results. I say ticking, he managed to drag Michael's time in Smith's Grove out for another 22 years, convincing the courts to allow him to try every experimental drug and therapy style in the book. The world needed to know what made Michael tick, at least Dr. Sartain believed so anyway. Everyone else that encountered Michael in that time agreed with Loomis and Laurie, feeling the evil ooze off him. He should have been destroyed like a rabid dog, taken out of the game before he had a chance to come back and cause even more damage. Michael had been seen by over 50 clinical psychiatrists, and with each, many different opinions. Loomis reasoned that he was nothing more than pure evil. Sartain disagreed, saying evil was not a medical diagnosis and that under his more holistic approach to Michael's therapy had seen a marked improvement in Michael's aggression levels, even testing the theory by leaving two kittens in Michael's cell overnight with them, seeing them come out on the other side unharmed by the once fierce boogeyman of Haddonfield. I wonder what year this was because Peter wouldn't have been too happy. Holy shit, Sartain, you're going to get cancelled. Do you think he, Michael was clever enough not to... Probably. Okay. I mean, most people who came across it, like most like doctors like Loomis and a few others that would have been close to him, 
would have made the statement. I think we said it in the first episode mm. that Michael was a lot smarter than he thought. Like, thought you know, yeah. That there was an intelligence in there. He was like, even when it, when it came to him not speaking, it was a choice not to speak. It wasn't that he couldn't. It's not that his brain wouldn't let him. It's not that there was a mental problem stopping him. It wasn't he like autism where you become nonverbal yeah. or anything like that. This was just he made the decision. He was not going to speak. And that was it. Okay. You know, so, yeah. so they, they reckon there wasn't a time. And it, I think we even say it here at some point that, like, he said at some, at some stage that, like, you know, they found maps and stuff in Michael's fucking room multiple times. Like, yeah. you know, like they, they knew he was trying to get out. Yeah. You know, that yeah. they, he was planning something in his head. Like, Sartain put, but when it came to him mellowing out with the kittens, Sartain put this down to age, saying Michael was an evolving, aging animal like the rest of us, and the time was taming the beast. Exactly as Smithgrove Brass taught back in 1978, when Michael was seen as docile and a near perfect inmate at the sanitarium. The big thing that the higher ups in Smithgrove wanted here was for Michael to talk. Like I said, they knew he could and he chose not to. Mm. A breakthrough in that regard would be a monumental feat in the psychological world and in the process of understanding the mind of the most animalistic killer in American history. Unfortunately for Sartain, by 2018, 40 years had passed and not enough progress had been made with Michael to justify the expense of keeping him in a facility of the quality of Smith's Grove. And it was decided that the need for budget cuts and the perception being all that could be learned from the shape had been learned to transfer Michael back out of the state to a more basic facility to live out his days in irrelevance, hopefully forgotten to time as an urban legend. Forgotten and hopefully never to be replicated. Ever. (laughs) Sartain was growing desperate and had one more theory he wanted to employ. The theory he had was that Dr. Loomis gained the ability to control Michael in a controlled environment due to him being the only doctor to have had, and I quote, the privilege of studying Michael in the wild, out in his natural habitat, doing what comes natural to him, just like any other beast in the wild. He believed that if he could lead Michael back to Haddonfield and back into the life of Laurie Strode, then maybe he could gain some insight that would allow him to finally crack the mind of the most cold-blooded killer America had ever seen. Sertain was gullible and believed, just because he spent a lot of time with Michael and was Loomis's replacement, that he had built a kind of trust with Michael, believing that if Michael wanted him dead, he could have easily done so at any stage over the past 22 years. It was for that reason he believed he could stage a breakout on the night of Michael's transfer, replicating the events from 40 years ago, and by doing so, becoming the only man to really understand and explain the enigma that was the shape. There is one more last-ditch effort to reach Michael, although Dr. Sartain knew himself it was a long shot. Documentary producers Aaron Corey and Dana Haynes had been working on a series based on Myers and believed they could get Michael and Laurie in the same room, they would have ratings gold. First interviewee on the list was Michael, who they went to visit at Spitzgrove the day before his transfer. And this is a podcast, a documentary podcast. Okay. So they were documentary producers, but they are producers of a podcast, but I just wanted to clear it up so people didn't think it was just a normal documentary you can find. Oh. 
can't find her that podcast either and we'll find out why soon (laughs) (laughs) yeah they were really throwing everything at the kitchen sink at this you know this whole thing highly broke sanitarium protocol but like you said it was a last ditch effort so it was now or never yeah the podcasters arrived during rec time and after going through security and signing their lives away with liability waivers were directed to the yard by dr sartain who filled them in on his time with michael as they went along the yard in Smith's Grove was sectioned out into boxes marked out on a soft rubber tile floor. The inmates were chained to heavy concrete blocks that were bolted to the floor, keeping the patients confined within each individual box. Aaron Corey approached Michael first as Dana stood at a safe distance recorder and mic in hand. Sartain just watched with a kind of curious amusement. As Aaron approached the imaginary force field provided by the marked out floor and chain, he began to address Michael. Michael, my name is Aaron. I followed your case for years, and I still know very little about you. I want to know more about that night, about those involved. The shape remained motionless. Aaron continued. Do you think of them? Feel guilty about their faith? Nothing. Aaron continued. Do you remember Laurie Strode? Does she remind you of your sister, Michael? Is that why you chose her? The shape half turned as if he was going to respond, but then didn't. Aaron looked back to Sartain who nodded at Aaron to go ahead. Aaron looked to Dana, she unzipped her bag. I borrowed something from a friend at the Attorney General's office, something I'd like you to see. Aaron then pulled out a familiar Shatner mask from 1978, now old and cracked looking. Sartain looked to see his exchange. Aaron held the mask out before him. The shape makes no movement, but the other patients begin to become restless, pacing madly and beginning to moan. Aaron doesn't lower the mask. You recognize this, don't you, Michael? How does it make you feel? Say something! A few of the patients start screaming and testing their restraints like rabbit animals. Dr. Sartain began to become concerned as more patients joined in, stomping and screaming, getting louder and louder. Aaron caught up in the adrenaline of the moment, began to shout at the shape. Say something! The courtyard was worked into a frenzy course of madness, but the shape remained still. It was then Dr. Sartain lost his nerve and pulled the plug, ushering the podcasters back into the sanitarium away from the screaming lunatics who still wailed and screamed in the exercise yard. Sartain was nervous but agreed that if Corey and Haynes could convince Laurie Strode to return before Michael's transfer later that night, then he would allow them the time and facility to allow for the 40-year enemies to come face-to-face for what the podcasters hoped would be a breakthrough moment, and Sartain hoped would allow him one more chance at some insight before he took on more drastic measures. But that alone was going to be a massive task. Laurie was notorious for not speaking to the press and was borderline agoraphobic, rarely leaving her super secure compound, getting all she needed delivered to the house directly, occasionally allowing herself to leave to see her granddaughter Alison on a rare occasion Karen would allow it, or the grandmother and granddaughter team could organise a secret rendezvous. Alison only saw all the good parts of Laurie, the smart, witty woman who gave her life advice and listened to her when she had trouble with her mother. She didn't live through the prepper lifestyle her mother suffered through. So in her eyes, Karen was unreasonable and Laurie was her loving, if not a little paranoid grandmother who had lived a tough, painful life. The only look the podcasters had was that Laurie didn't have a whole lot of income coming in and wanted to give Alison a present to enjoy her youth. 
So when Dana offered her two grand for 15 minutes of her time, Laurie gladly accepted, fully aware in herself that she had no intention of telling these two documentarians anything. And that's exactly what happened. Aaron and Dana entered the residence of Laurie Strode, filled her in on what they planned to do, and then were promptly asked for payment and to leave her property and never contact her again. The dream of an encounter between Michael and Laurie now seemed lost to the two journalists, and with that, they decided to spend their trip visiting the site of the original crimes as Michael slipped out of their grasps. For now, at least, as he prepared with Dr. Sartain for his transfer. The transfer was to happen late in the evening of October 30th, 2018. Along with Michael, 11 other patients were to be transferred. Dr. Sartain insisted on accompanying Michael, claiming he wanted to see his responsibility out uh, to the very end, just as Dr. Loomis would have done. Also on the bus was the driver, a prison guard, Matt Haskell, and Warden Michael Koonman. Why was the warden coming along? He wasn't the warden of the sanitarium. It was uh, just a kind of a senior term, senior officer term Mm. at Smith's Grove. Okay. Around 8pm, the bus left Smithsgrove under the anxious gaze of Laurie Strode. She was sitting in her car nearby, necking a mini bottle of vodka. Around 9pm, it was found by a father and son turned over on the side of the road, a few bodies scattered across the road, and a few inmates running off into the distance. Brian and Kevin Mattis were returning from a hunting trip when they came across the crash site. Brian Mattis went to check on the crash victims while Kevin called in the accident to the police. They were both found dead. Nick snapped along with the bus driver, guard and warden from Smithsgrove. The only man left alive but injured was Dr. Sartain, who it seems was accidentally shot by, but not killed by the young Kevin Mattis, who was only 14 years old at the time. The first responding officer and closest to the scene just happened to be Officer Frank Hawkins. Officer Hawkins surveyed the scene and all he found was bodies until he came upon Sartain, who simply asked, has he escaped? Surveying the damage, it was realized that none of the inmates had been killed in the crash. Foul play was definitely afoot, meaning most likely that Dr. Sartain had gone through with his plan to free Michael. Although there is another urban legend that is definitely not true, but worth saying for the fun of it. Anyway, as you said, as we said, Laurie had been watching the bus as it left Smithsgrove. She had also been drinking and possibly self-medicating again. This was a very difficult experience for her. Last time Michael was out of Haddonfield, she was going through the worst phase of her life. Constantly paranoid, not knowing where the boogeyman was hidden away or if he could get free. And worse again, she didn't have Loomis on hand anymore to put her mind at ease and keep a close eye on the shape. So after it was all said and done, rumours started. Some of the townspeople of Haddonfield blamed Laurie for the events that were about to take place. They said she drew the boogeyman back to their once peaceful town. With that blame, a rumour started that Laurie Strode followed the prison bus out of Haddonfield and ran it off the road in a moment of lunacy, terrified to lose tabs on the man she feared the most. Ridiculous, especially when you hear about her passion for hunting him down and her bravery in luring him to her to try and avoid any other unnecessary deaths. A plan which wouldn't have worked without the help of Dr. Sartain. See, this is where Loomis and Laurie and the whole mental health system failed with Michael. They believe Michael had an obsession with Laurie, mainly because Laurie believed he had an obsession with her. The PTSD of the 1978 massacre caused her to create this toxic bond with Michael. She believed she was his white whale and that Michael wouldn't rest until he finally eliminated her. But she was wrong. 
They were all wrong. Michael didn't give two shits about Laurie Strode. Laurie Strode to him was nothing more than another potential victim who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And if given the option to solely hunt down Laurie or go out and massacre as many people as he could in the little time he knew he'd had, he was happy to choose the latter. And that massacre would begin the very next morning, October 31st, 2018, Haddonfield, Illinois, Halloween. The first victims discovered were at a filling station and garage just down the road from Haddonfield Cemetery. Aaron Corey and Dana Haynes had been visiting the grave of Judith Myers while recording some content for their podcast. Little did they know they weren't the only ones. The boogeyman was lurking nearby and soon they will become more of a part of Michael's story than they had ever intended. Not long before midday, four bodies were discovered at the filling station. The mechanic Christian Paderewski... Paderewski? Paderewski had been stabbed in the head with the drill and stripped of his overalls and the cashier Zach Garrett beaten to death and left laying at the shop till. Inside the filling station restrooms Aaron Corey was found beaten to death and Dana Haynes strangled her eyes bulging from her head her skull cracked from the force when she was slammed against the wall. Yep. It was instantly connected to the escaped Myers as only one thing was missing from the scene of the crime. Well, outside of the mechanics overalls. And that was the William Shatner mask that Aaron and Dana had on loan from the DA's office. Or was it was it DA or the public? Uh, I can't remember. <laughs> and it was still in the <laughs> trunk of their car at the time of their deaths. They also guessed it was Michael because they had managed to round up all but two of the escaped mental patients from the accident. Apparently, they found a few of them in the library checking their emails and a group of them running around a flea market trying to catch butterflies. I'd love to have pet butterflies like your one from the great. The ones no. that follow me around. Do, do, do they really, can you really train butterflies to follow your own? I don't think so. I think that's CGI. <laughs> you could train crows. That would be class. Oh, that would be cool. Like Rick and Morty style. Oh, yeah. Walking around like Except Rick with two crows. I want to be like a Snow White in, a, in Shrek where um, you know, her arms go out and next thing it's like Led Zeppelin and all the birds appear. Oh, I would just feel like I was Odin. I'd be walking I am Odin. <laughs> My crows. Attack. <laughs> At this point, only two remained at large. Prisoner A2201, Michael Audrey Myers, and a Mr. Anthony Tavali. Tavali, that's what we said it was last time, wasn't it? No. Tivoli. 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 I got it. A paranoid schizophrenic who was only really a danger to himself. He became classified as criminally insane because a few incidents where he was trying to hurt himself resulted in him accidentally harming people around him in the process. Self-destructive behavior with no thought for the people around him. Exactly. Tivoli pays a big price for the boogeyman hysteria brought on by what happens next, but we'll be getting into that real soon. We sure will, because it's dark. The shape has most of his costume in place and he's ready to relive his night of fun once again 40 years later. By 10pm that night, Michael would have laid out four more victims as he mindlessly walked towards his real obsession. 45 Lampkin Lane. The bodies literally started to read like a map from the crash site to the old Myers home. Along with Guard Haskell, Warden Koonman, Brian and Kevin Mattis, Christian Pedruski, Zach Garrett, Aaron Corey and Dana Haynes, Michael killed Gina Pancella with a hammer, stealing her knife to then stab to death her neighbour Andrea Wagner. He then made his way to the Marcy residence to live out once again his babysitter fantasies. This is the first of Michael's 2018 murders that we actually have a decent account of. 
because despite murdering Kevin Mattis and one more young teen later, Michael generally didn't harm children. So although the babysitter and her boyfriend were killed, the babysitter, eight-year-old Julian Morrissey, was left alive and the only witness to the murder of the two teens. He claimed that Michael was just roaming the halls of the top floor of the house, stopping only to stare at Julian for a few minutes. Julian, frozen in fear, didn't make a squeak. He said the boogeyman then walked into his room and hid in his closet. Julian obviously took this opportunity to get the hell out of there. Downstairs, Vicky Gardner and her boyfriend Dave Robbins were doing what babysitting teens do and they were getting busy. So they had no time for this boogeyman bullshit from this kid. (laughs) But seeing how spooked he looked and being that she was actually a nice girl and good babysitter, she brought Julian back to bed and did the routine monster check. Nothing behind the door, nothing under the bed, that sort of thing. Then she got to the closet. That's when Michael attacked. Julian ran screaming for Dave to come quick. He had to save Vicky or they'll all die. He was right. Julian ran to get help just as Tommy Doyle and Lindsay Wallace had 40 years earlier. But Vicky and Dave would not have the same fate as Laurie. Vicky was found brutally stabbed to death, posed on a chair with a white sheet over her like a ghost, glasses over the sheet where the eyes should be. Dave was found pinned to the wall by a knife three foot off the floor, confirming the method of murder suspected to have been perpetrated against Bob Sims in the Wallace home 40 years earlier. 24 hours in and already Michael has his record broken at 12 fresh bodies. Cops hit the scene fast after Julian raised the alarm at a neighbour's. Again, Officer Hawkins was first in the scene, followed closely by Laurie Strode, who was keeping tabs on the night's goings-on using her own police scanner. Hawkins and Laurie were so fast to reach the residence that they got there before Michael could leave. He took so much time setting up the bodies, it gave them the upper hand. As Hawkins surveyed the damage, Laurie followed orders and stayed outside, waiting for word from Hawkins on the severity of the situation. Laurie then claims she saw Michael in a window of the house and took shot, hitting a mirror. It was his reflection she was looking at. And Michael passed by Hawkins like a flash, down the stairs and out the door, back on track to Lampkin Lane. Laurie says she hit him at least once in the shoulder as he got away, but as usual, the gun blast did little to slow Michael down. It wasn't long before first responders and reinforcements hit the Morrissey home. Sheriff Omar Barker, the man in charge when it came to law enforcement in Haddonfield, also arrived, bringing along with him an up-and-moving Dr. Sartain. He told Sheriff Barker and Officer Hawkins that the bus lost control after Michael overtook the first guard, then the driver... He is no longer dormant. I saw him kill with my own eyes. He only knows how to keep moving and to keep killing. And he will kill and kill again unless he is captured. But why didn't Michael kill him when he was killing everyone else? Oh, he had an answer for that too. I tried to hide, but he found me. Locked me to a seat. He looked down at me. I closed my eyes. And when I opened them, he walked away. Or he gave you a pass because you freed him. Yeah. Barker told Hawkins to bring Sartain along with him on his search. He might be a little eccentric, but his insight when it comes to Michael could help in the case. Hawkins reluctantly agreed. This is also famous for being the one and only meeting between Dr. Sartain and Laurie. It's said that Sartain looked almost starstruck at the sight of Laurie and fumbled over his words trying to get questions out. This is also when Hawkins says Laurie admitted to praying for years that Michael would escape so she could finally kill him lending some credence to the myth that she actually drove the bus off the road. 
Yeah, but if she had, then Sartain had enough time to tell the cops the accident was caused by a car pushing them off the road. It would have suited him down to the ground because his plan would take action and he genuinely would not be at fault. The fact that he told Barker and Hawkins that it was Michael's doing tells me that the crash was a part of his plan and not Laurie's. While all this was going on, the high school was holding its annual Halloween dance, which was being attended by Laurie's granddaughter, Alison. Alison said after a fight with her boyfriend, Cameron, she left the dance early with their mutual friend, Oscar Berlucci, Berlucci was a bit of a class clown and a fifth wheel in the group of Alison, Cameron, Vicky and Dave. Call back to Woodsboro and Ghostface. He was like the Randy of the group. Yeah. And just like Randy, he had the hots for the girl he couldn't have. His best friend's girl, Alison. But as they were arguing and he and Alison were alone, he did what every friend-zoned male would do and seized the opportunity, hoping to whisk Alison off her feet while she was still on the outs with Cameron. And just like all the friend-zoned guys before him, he failed. <laughs> just because a girl is nice with you doesn't mean she wants to sleep with you. Really? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so she pushed him away and left him laying in this yard they had cut through for a shortcut. She was about 100 yards away when she heard Oscar screaming, but not just any screaming. Like, it was pure panic and terror. And just as fast as it started, it stopped and there was silence. Alison ran back to find Oscar laid out like a kebab, skewered by the sharp tips of the gate he was trying to scale when he was attacked. Alison said she could hear him breathing before she saw him. Then the pale white face emerged from the darkness. She was eye to eye with the animal her grandmother had always warned her about. The boogeyman was real and he was coming to get her. With Michael still in a fenced off yard, Alison took the chance to run, screaming for help as she went. This obviously caught the attention of the local residents who phoned it in. Hawkins and Tartain were close by and came to get Alison. They searched the nearby area and called out the coroner for Oscar, but Michael was again missing. But they were fast. He couldn't have gotten far. Sartain grilled Alison about what she had saw as Hawkins kept his eyes on the shadows, looking for any movement to give away the shape. Alison then began to freak out and pointed out the window. Hawkins saw what she saw and without any hesitation, ran his squad car right into unflinching Michael Myers, knocking him to the floor with force. This is when Sartain would show his true colours. Hawkins wanted to end it now. He got out of his car, gun drawn, ready to fill Michael with holes. Enough holes that this time he definitely wouldn't be getting back up from. But Sartain got in his way, refusing to let Hawkins kill state property. He then slipped the scalpel from his pocket and stabbed the officer in the neck. He stabbed him once more to keep him down. Then he went to inspect Michael. Taking his mask and putting it on himself before dragging Michael's body to the squad car and putting him back in right next to the frantic Allison. He then told Allison his plan to study the beast in his natural habitat and see him react to his most desired prey, Laurie Strode. Like we said earlier, Sartain had inter- inherited this view that Michael and Laurie were linked, bonded through a shared experience 40 years ago, but really it was him pushing them together. Michael is a killing machine, Laurie was just another bug to crush. Not that he complained, that he'd complain, I'm sure given the chance Michael would only be too happy to get the woman that ended his last killing spree, another notch on the knife, but that's all it would be for him. The relationship held a lot more meaning to Sartain and Strode alike. Hey, you. Yeah, you. You like the podcast? 
Want some more? Then head on over to our Patreon page where for just 5 euro a month you get up to 12 extra shows in that month along with piles of mini-sodes covering fun facts from the world of horror and true crime. Each week we drop multiple shows such as Real Monsters where we look at the inspiration behind the movie killers or Behind the Mask where we take a look at the influential people and happenings in the world of Hollywood. All this, plus movie reviews, watch-alongs, and regular AMAs. That means ask me anything. You really do get a bang for your buck. And and by bang, I mean, like, podcast. I'm not soliciting or anything. Shit. Um, Moving on. For just five euro a month, all this could be yours. So head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash IAAPod. That's www.patreon.com forward slash IAAPod. And start listening now. As they drove to the stroke compound, Sartain began rambling, telling Addison how he couldn't really get results from Michael as long as he was locked away. He He had tried for years to get him talking, but not once had Michael uttered a word. Alison, thinking quickly on her feet, told Sartain Michael had spoken to her. Just one word. But she wouldn't tell him until he pulled the car over and released her. The manic doctor, clearly out of his mind and delusional from years of working around and failing to understand the pure evil that was the shape, pulled the car over only yards from the stroll home and demanded to know what it was that Michael had said. Was it his sister? Was it Judith? He screamed as Alison pleaded to be let go. Almost like a trigger word, the sound of Judith's name woke Myers, who quickly started to stomp the front seat with his two feet, driving Sartain headfirst into the steering wheel. He then got out of the car, dragged Sartain out and stomped on his head until his head was completely crushed. Allison, who had, who had used the diversion to escape, saw the murder take place from a nearby wooded area where she hid. She then ran from there to join her family at, the gra- at her grandmother's house. There was a squad car parked right outside lorries in case Michael did turn up and they noticed the commotion a few yards ahead of them. They were slow to approach because it was another squad car and it hadn't done anything out of the ordinary yet. But as the car sat there longer, they felt they needed to approach. They were later found inside the strode residence, one with their throat cut, the other with his head completely decapitated, sitting on the first officer's lap, his torch stuck up through his neck hole, making him resemble a jack-o'-lantern. Yuck. Mm-hmm. Sartain's plan had been a success, even if he wouldn't be around to study the results. He had reunited old foes in Michael Myers and Laurie Strode, and Laurie was determined it would be the final meeting. She had prepared for this day for 40 years. She just needed to follow the drill. Lower in the shape, get him in the trap, then hit the kill switch. It was perfect and it was about to all fall together as planned. For most of them anyway, there would be one more casualty in the stroll home before Laurie would face Michael. And that was her son-in-law, Ray, who was found strangled to death in the front yard later that night. It's hard to fully explain, but Laurie's house had like rolling security gates on every door in the house. Like you'd see on a shop when they locked up at night. She sent Karen to the basement panic room while she went to lure Michael towards her and to check for any sign of Allison. She searched each darkened room with a shotgun and a spotlight torch, closing off each door as it was cleared. Then, just as Allison came into the house, Michael struck, attacking Laurie, knocking her from an upstairs window just as she had done to him in the past. And just in the same way, he looked away, looked back, and Laurie was gone. Michael then heard all the commotion coming from the basement, with Karen trying to get Allison into the panic room before it was too late. They were making a lot of noise in the process. 
almost like they were trying to draw attention to themselves. And they were. The basement wasn't a panic room, it was a kill room. Three generations of Strode shot at, stabbed and beat Michael until he fell into the hole in the floor leading to the basement. Laurie then flipped the switch, locking steel bars across the hatch. She then hit the kill switch, filling the house with gas and multiple sparks. Michael was going to burn to the ground with the house, finally dead, finally forgotten. Only problem is, Laurie forgot to inform the authorities of her plan. So once a fire was reported by the neighbours, the fire department were straight out on the scene, ready to put it out. Laurie, who had been stabbed by Michael in the struggle earlier, was on her way to the emergency room along with Karen and Alison. Haddonfield had a good fire department because they were on the scene within 10 minutes of the strodes leaving. What happened next is anyone's guess, but when Sheriff Barker turned up to the scene, what he found was a burnt out house, eight dead bodies, and seven critically injured firefighters. Among the dead was Sartain, Ray Nelson, and two police officers, Officer Francis and Officer Richards, and four more first responders. There was no sign or trace of the shape in the wreckage, and it had to be assumed he escaped, considering the firefighters didn't fuck themselves up. So Michael's true journey continued, his journey home to Lampkin Lane. And this always had to be the goal, let alone has his trajectory been always heading towards his childhood home. But if you remember back in episode one, when we spoke of Michael and Dr. Loomis's birthday trip around Haddonfield, when asked where he wanted to go, home was the first and only location suggested by Michael makes that reality tv show buster rhymes seem all the more dumber now knowing michael's obsession with his house <laughs> oh yeah and the neighbors that called the fire in when peter dickerson was found pinned to the kitchen counter with a drawer full of knives sticking out of his back dead the other his wife sandra was found barely clinging to life after her throat had been cut and she was made to watch as her husband was butchered that's how pissed off laurie was that they called the fire in <laughs> The Haddonfield survivors of the Babysitter Massacre in 1978 had a yearly tradition to meet up and share some drinks. At this point, Tommy Doyle, Lindsay Wallace and Lonnie Elm were the all that was left. Former Sheriff Lee Brackett, who lost his daughter Annie to Michael, who was also still alive but on duty as a security guard at the local hospital that night. He Tom- was going to be busy. <laughs> Tommy and Lindsay, we remember as the children being babysat by Laurie on that fateful night. Lonnie was just another kid at the time who happened to run headfirst into Michael right across the road from the old Myers house in 78 minutes before his recapture. As they drank and shared stories, news came in of the murders and the possibility of Michael Myers being the perpetrator having escaped again the night before. Tommy, now a man in his 50s, had no intention of running this time and rounded up a mob around Haddonfield, hell-bent on finding and lynching this monster that night to finally put an end to the evil that was Michael Myers. Literally, the mob roamed the streets chanting, evil dies tonight. And I was kind of joking about uh, the Lee Brackett being mm. a security guard in the hospital and him having a busy night. Mm. That's because after Laurie and her family arrived there, the place kind of became like a central hub for um, the Myers search. So the yeah. police were there, all the first responders were there, and there was a fucking bunch of families there, obviously looking through bodies and wounded to see was any of their yeah. family there. But because of this, then the mob that Tommy started to fucking build up all started to congregate here as well. And it kind of came the area, became the area where all these plans started to fester and manifest. Yeah. In the meantime... Tivoli, who we spoke about earlier, 
had also kind of followed the mob to that direct to, to that area. Mm. And he was still in the Smith's Grove fucking uniform. Do you know the, the, the kind of scrubs that they have on um, yeah. inmates with the fucking big Smith's Grove inmate on the fucking back of it. And somebody spotted him lurking around the hospital mm. and instantly screamed, Myers! Of course. So everybody started to lose their fucking shit. Yeah. Except for Laurie and her daughter, Karen. Karen, I'm right, yeah? Karen. Karen. They knew, because I mean, have you seen Have you seen a picture of Tivoli? I have. He looks like fucking... Uh, um, the penguin? The penguin from fucking... Uh, no, not just any penguin. He looks De exactly Vito. like DeVito's yeah. penguin from Batman Returns. Yeah. And so I mean he was not the hulking the figure yeah, but he wasn't the hulking figure that was no. Michael Myers like no. you know so the mob not making too much noise to be fucking to, to let Laurie be heard ends up chasing this poor man around the hospital mm. Karen followed and she kind of had seen where he went so she followed him down a few hallways and she managed to trap him in between these hallways not trap him trap him's wrong she didn't trap him for the mob kept him safe she put him in yeah. between these two hallways where she was able to lock the doors in okay. yeah but the mob was too much and they were breaking through these doors and Tivoli who was already obviously very mentally unstable mm. in a panic jumped out the window okay to his death and suicide. So he he committed suicide to keep away from these people. Yeah. Whether he knew he was going to die in the drop or not. I was just about to say it. He was just trying to get yeah. away from it. But he, uh, he looked extremely scared at the time is how it was described afterwards. Okay. Now, you think this would calm the mob a little bit, you know, thinking, oh, shit, we fucked up. But no, their attitude was... Shit, got the wrong person. You know, this was Michael's fault. We okay. wouldn't be in this way. We wouldn't be this way if Michael wasn't out there calling him. We still got to go look for him. Yeah. Now, again, this is very kind of typical in America at this time. Mm-hmm. In 2018, I mean, there was a lot of unrest. You have Is Trump in office in 2018? He's in office He's, in he's 2016, wasn't he? Yeah. So yeah. there was a lot of unrest in the country. These kind of mobs were becoming normal. You know, mm. you were have the you and me see it a lot, and we yeah. saw it a lot in the news where you'd have black right matters, mm. gay rights matter, mm-hmm. black lives matter. Mm-hmm. Okay, then there was the gun night, the good nuts, and the racists coming out with all lives matter, <laughs> 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 even though they didn't give a shit about anybody by their own yeah. fucking group. Yeah. You know, so this was becoming the norm, and we see this here again. They were kind of like, it's almost like the gods were fucking telling them, you fucked up, look at what you've done to this man. And instead they took the message and completely twisted it to their own... Agenda. Agenda, exactly. Yeah. And that, that's again, seems to be something that's very typical in America. Mm-hmm. Now, we need to be careful because I've heard from other podcasts, some of the hardcore Americans, if they hear this, will go on a tirade on us on, online like and start freaking out because we're Irish and we don't know what we're fucking talking about. We got the news here too, bitch. <laughs> I watch CNN. <laughs> I try to stay away from American. Being honest, but it is interesting. Yeah, when they had their it, election, it, is. it was cool. And when the war broke out between Ukraine and Russia, I followed a lot of it on mm-hmm. uh, CNN and shit like that. Yeah, on the American channel. Oh, I came down early and you you had it on like it. It was just quicker moving news and it kind of no. You change channel, you get a different opinion. Yeah, it's a very. 50-50 split when it comes to America on what you're going to get when you, depending on who you're watching. Anyway, as we said, Tivoli's death did nothing to disperse the mob. In fact, it caused them to dig their nails in deeper. Even gaining Allison as a supporter who left the hospital to join the search against her mother's wishes. 
After a few hours of driving around, a small group led by Lindsay Wallace came across some kids in a playground. Lindsay begged them to go home, but they said they were having too much fun playing hide-and-seek with the pervert man. Mm. <laughs> and besides, they were waiting for their friend Dennis. That's when Lindsay said she saw him, standing there holding what looked to be a mask, blood dripping from its neck. Dennis? Dennis, and the only or second incident to child murder by Michael... Dennis would have been about 13 at the time, so I'm not sure where he's cut off age when it comes to children, you know. At yeah. this point, it seems like once you're a teenager, you're fucked, you're fucked. because that other kid was 14 as well. Okay. But uh, any kid he has run into that has been under, under. the teen mm-hmm. age, they survived him, so okay. he wouldn't know. Tommy Doyle was next to come onto this scene, discovering Lindsay's search team of Marcus and Vanessa Wilson dead and tied to a swing set. Dennis's head resting on Vanessa's lap. Lindsay, seeing Tommy, came out of hiding in hysterics and told Tommy of everything she had just witnessed Michael do. Tommy and Lonnie split up in their search. Tommy and Lee Brackett coming from one direction with Lonnie, Cameron and Allison coming from another. It was Lonnie that first made the connection to Lampkin Lane and decided that would be a good place to start their search. Lampkin Lane had been sold and renovated years earlier by an awesome couple by the name of Big John Soto and Little John Mo- Mo- Mossy? Mosey? Mosey? Mosey. The couple referred to each other as Little John and Big John due Aww. to the obvious name clash in their relationship and were a happily married couple living out their fantasy life on 45 Lampkin Lane. They didn't mind the history. In fact, the Johns used to love playing up to the fact that they were in the Myers' death house every year, decorating it to the max and scaring little kids with tales of Michael Myers. They were found stabbed and posed exactly as they were in a photograph that lay right next to them. A photo of happier times with Big John laying in the grass, his head resting on little John's lap. According to Alison, the house was in darkness when her and the Elms arrived at the house. Lonnie went in first, telling the kids to sit back and call for backup. Then some shots rang out inside the house. Cameron, worried about his father, disobeyed his wishes, following him into the house, with Alison right behind him armed with a shotgun. She said they searched the house only to find the dead Johns, and as she examined the scene, she heard Cameron scream. When she ran to the hall, she could see him struggling with Michael. Alison tried to help, but Michael swatted her away like a fly, knocking her down the stairs and breaking her leg. Michael then proceeded to stab, beat, and brutalize Cameron, all as Allison begged him to stop. Then she hit the right chord. She antagonized him in just the right way. I'm the one you want. I'm just like your sister. Same age, same hair color. It can be just like it was that night 40 years ago. She got Michael's attention, but not his mercy. And as he turned to walk towards the broken-legged, helpless Allison, he grabbed Cameron by the head and snapped his neck in a manner that looked like it was nothing but a loose end he needed to tie up. No reason, no emotion. Michael closed in on Allison, raising his knife. Allison screamed, do it, do it! But she wasn't talking to Michael. While all this took place, Tommy and Lee had met with Karen and they had formulated a plan. Just as Michael was about to bring the knife down on Allison, Karen came from behind, sticking Michael with a pitchfork, knocking him to the floor, again, temporarily. But just like always, the boogeyman wouldn't die, and he got right back up, his eyes still stuck to Allison. But Karen hadn't always been ignoring her mother's training, and as a child, she did pick up some tips and tricks for dealing with Myers. She grabbed his mask, 
Backing slowly out the door, mask in hand, she baited the boogeyman out the door and over to the next street. When he got there, Karen was nowhere to be found, but his mask lay there, waiting for him to pick it up. And just as he did, the lights came on and Michael realised he was surrounded. There was about 15 people there, all armed with guns, knives, bats, bars and sticks, but no one wanted to make the first move. Until Lee Brackett said, fuck it, and took a shot at Michael, fueled by pure vengeance for his daughter. Then Tommy took a shot, followed by others. Karen couldn't stay to watch and ran back to see Alison, assured the mob would finish the job. Are you joking? This is Michael fucking Myers we're talking about. Yeah, some survivors talk a big game from that night, but the truth of the matter is when all was said and done, Tommy Doyle was dead, Lee Brackett was dead, Lonnie and Cameron Elm dead, and of the 13 people left of that mob, three more lay critical as the rest ran to save their own lives. Michael again, nowhere to be seen. The last action of Michael Myers in 2018 would be his worst, for Laurie at least. While police surveyed the damage and Allison was being patched up at the ambulance, Karen's curiosity got the better of her. What was Michael's fascination with his sister's window? What had he been looking at for all those years? So she went to look and was found there 10 minutes later, bleeding from her neck, unresponsive and pronounced dead moments later. Michael then disappeared. No sightings, no word, no nothing for four years. Some believed he went somewhere to die. Some believe he went somewhere to wait. Laurie knew he was out there, but she didn't care. Karen's death was an eye-opener, and she couldn't make the same mistakes with Alison. But she still had to be ready, because even if Michael's body died, the boogeyman would live on. Evil can't die, it just changes shape. What shape that will be, you'll have to wait and see. Next week... On The Shape, Michael Myers, Part 4. And if you liked all that, go check out our Patreon exclusive shows, Behind the Mask and Real Monsters, where we look at the ingredients that make up this show. A little bit of movie, a little bit of true crime. Um, Until next week, though, that's it. I'm Dr. Harley Ray Smokestein, THC. And I'm Amy Rose. It's Alive Alive, all the guts and gore with none of the guilt. See you next week. Same Alive Alive time, same Harvest channel. Love you. Bye-bye. Okay, lady, I love you. Bye-bye.